0: Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are tehpodcast.com slash TEH30. We've got three hosts this week, two regulars and a guest. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo in askleo.com where I help people understand and get past the confusing world of technology. I'm Kevin Savitz. Uh, I am
1: one of the hosts at Antic, the Atari 8-bit podcast, where I help people understand the confusing world of technology from like 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, my name
2: is Quinn Dunkey. I guess I'm the guest today. I am a technical director at a uh, mobile games company. And uh, on the side, I do uh, makery type things and I blog all about it at blondiehacks.com.
0: And as always, we'll have links to that kind of stuff in the show notes. It's uh, Blondie with just an I, if I remember correctly. That is correct. Yep. Um, and so as you'll notice, both Gary and, and Randy are not uh, not here tonight. They are off uh, doing other things. I was looking at Google Maps a minute ago, and Randy's in the middle of M- Missouri somewhere. I think, I think he pegged into a hotel there, but we'll see. And I saw from uh, Gary's... Uh, earlier today, he let everybody know where he was the old fashioned way, uh, by posting on Facebook. So, uh, what have you been up to this week, Kevin? Um, I've been sort of,
1: I don't know, I'm doing a lot of interviews for, uh, the, the Atari podcast. Um, just kind of head down and trying to get some of those in the can before I, I head out to, uh, Kansas in a couple of weeks. Um, Today, I interviewed someone who was in an Atari commercial in (laughs) in the 1980s. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the other day, I interviewed a woman who was the uh, editor of uh, Family Computing Magazine, which was a a, a computer magazine in uh, the early to to mid-80s. So that's been fun.
0: I actually remember that magazine, of all things. I'm not sure why, because I certainly wasn't a family computing kind of guy. But uh, I do remember its existence.
1: Her, the interesting thing that uh, I thought about that interview was that she did not know anything about computers and she tried to keep it that way. So she would read the article and if she didn't understand it, it got sent back. <laughs> that way she
0: knew that the readers would understand this. That's actually a really good approach. Yeah. So I've got, um, <laughs> I was actually telling Kevin before we started recording, I did some major site updates that no one really cares about. That was basically my last week. Um, Quinn, what kind of stuff keeps you busy? What kind of stuff do you do? I mean, maybe a last week is a is a, a way to frame it, but we're kind of curious, what have you been up to?
2: Well, uh, let's see, so this week uh, I've been mostly out in the shop, as I said, I do uh, makery type things. I really hate that term maker, by the way. It implies that there's two types of humans in the world, makers and consumers, and I think that's a false dichotomy. I think creating things is a fundamental human activity that we all do in different ways, but uh, with that soapbox out of the way, uh, I've been working on uh, a steam engine, actually, in my garage, uh, which is uh, something I've been working on for quite a while. And, and, and also... by
0: steam engine, you mean physical steam engine, not something associated with the Steam gaming engine.
2: Yes, that is correct. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's nowadays you have to clarify, don't you? Uh, we, yes, do. This, we do. We uh, do. Yeah, this is uh, it's, there's a boiler, and uh, it operates under pressure, and yeah, it's all made of brass and copper and uh, various other nice things. And so I've never made a pressure vessel before, so that was pretty exciting.
1: Uh, the You day posted a uh, video the other day of that looked like you nearly killed yourself.
2: Yeah, well, so it turns out blow-off valves are real, and uh, they mean business. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was testing the blow-off valve to make sure that it, it's a safety function, that uh, it's a special valve that goes off uh, a little bit above the operating pressure of the boiler. And uh, before you use the boiler, uh, normally you want to make sure that valve functions as intended. And so you slightly overpressurize and make sure that the, the valve goes off. And uh, boy, does it go off! Uh, I filled my garage with steam and uh, knocked the camera out of my hand, and uh, got some pretty exciting video out of it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's on my uh, Twitter feed actually. If anyone wants to see that, or uh, actually Instagram is probably the easier way to find that.
0: I you know, and when I heard you were going to come to the show, I, I actually did go out and take a look at some of your websites. Although I didn't watch that video, though, I'm going to watch it now for sure. <laughs> I love to see things explode. Um, the uh, what impressed me is that uh, you've got like metalworking equipment all over the place, like mm-hmm. metal, sh- you know, metal lathes and mm-hmm. th- that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of machine shop stuff. Uh, I've got a vertical mill and a, and a lathe and uh, I do some welding and uh, all kinds of fabrication. And uh, yeah, uh, hoping to get into foundry work pretty soon as well. I just wow. can't seem to get enough. It's all fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause my dad used to do all that kind of stuff as well. And we had a, a metal lathe and a vertical mill and that kind of okay. stuff in our basement. Biggest issue we had was it was in our basement, in our house. And we'd end up with like little metal scraps on the floor all throughout the, all throughout the house.
2: Oh yes. Yeah. Just the other day, I found uh, a, a chip of aluminum from the mill in my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you how they got there. <laughs> Inexplicable.
1: So Leo, I just, I put the, uh, the link to her very short Instagram, uh, video. In yes. The, in the, I just want you to watch it now and now we, just watch it now. It's <laughs> short and, uh, listeners can hear your, your live reaction to this thing. It's, it's Okay.
0: Really... Hopefully it'll, it'll work here. Let's see. So can you guys hear the sound? No, no, but we'll hear <laughs> your react. This is your reaction video. That we're getting. <laughs> All right. I can see what you said about dropping them the camera. <laughs> Yikes! So there's a there's a longer version that has me uh, uh, swearing and
2: various other. Uh,
0: also, <laughs> oh, this is the PG-13 version. Yeah, this
2: is the uh, yeah the edited down version because I didn't actually realize for quite a while the camera was still running. So, uh, I, and I'm actually pleased that it, it that it was because yeah, I dropped the phone to the ground and amazingly it didn't break and I kept recording. And so there's video of me collecting myself and swearing and drying off the everything in the garage and yeah.
0: that's great. I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. Funny cuz I was thinking about that, you know, I don't know if you, you when you guys were younger, I had one of those little steam engines. Mm-hmm. Remember those that you could actually buy like at a toy store? Mm-hmm. No. And you fill them with a little bit of water and they'd give you these these I don't know if they were sterno pellets or something like that and you could actually I may still have it in the basement. I'll have to take a picture of it and you know, dig it out, take a picture of it. So you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, yeah, those things were great because you could get, you know, it had a flywheel on there and you'd get the steam engine running and the thing would just be going like gangbusters. Um, but of course my dad being who he was, was very concerned about, well, you know, it's a steam engine. It, these things do explode. Um, so it was an interesting, interesting experience. Yeah, it, uh, it does give you an appreciation for how
2: much energy there really is. I mean, that blow off valve is only 60 PSI, and uh, but I've uh, hydro tested the boiler to 180 PSI. You're supposed to, or uh, 150, sorry, you're supposed to test it to uh, at least two to three times the operating pressure, which in this case is 50, 50 to mm-hmm. 60 PSI. So, uh, you know, and the pressure test went fine, but it, yeah, it does give me pause if it had not uh, gone fine, having seen, you know, what 60
0: does. Yeah, yeah. So what do you plan to do with this thing once it's once it's running?
2: Uh, put it on the shelf and figure out what to build next, most likely. Uh, <laughs> to be my pattern, it's really about the journey more than the destination. Uh, but uh, I, do, uh, so I, I do like to build steam engines as well. And uh, so this boiler project has been sort of a way to, to actually run them on steam. You know, typically model steam engines, people build them and then run them on compressed air, which is fine. But, you know, said steam is right there in the name of steam right. engines. So I really wanted to be able to run it on live steam. Uh, which is a whole other uh, can of worms and I've learned a lot about boiler engineering in the process. It's quite a complicated science actually that people 100 years ago had figured
0: out. I was going to say it makes you uh, really appreciate what goes into or went into um, the steam engine steam locomotive uh, revolution of 100-150 years ago.
2: Yeah it really does. I mean I'm fascinated by the the peak of any technology so like internal combustion engines right now are amazing because they're right at the kind of the end of their run they've had 100 and 120 years of of refinement when they're about to be replaced and steam around the 1950s 1940s is is that same place where it was right at the peak of its sophistication and a steam locomotive from that era is incredibly sophisticated and incredibly efficient and uh, yeah, so it's really fascinating to see everything that they knew uh, that, uh, you know, we've sort of forgotten since then.
0: Very cool. So what um, is the next project? Do you have one in mind?
2: Well, so uh, Kevin mentioned Kansas. Uh, I will also be going to Kansas and uh, I've been working on that uh, project as well. I've got a, a retro game that I'm writing for the Apple II GS. Uh, so I'll be showing some of that uh, at, uh, the, at the show, Kansas Fest in a couple of weeks. So I've been working furiously on that, as is tradition. I'm sure I will finish what I want to show on the airplane, uh, along with all the (laughs) slides that I'm supposed to show uh, at uh, that conference.
1: I'm supposed to be giving three talks at this thing, so I'm going to need three airplane rides. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's that's ambitious. The great thing about Kansas Fest
2: is that you don't really have to prepare because it's all so casual uh, that you just kind of mumble your way through it and everybody has a good time.
0: Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, So are you, when you're writing your Apple II GS game, are you doing it on an actual Apple II or do you have like an emulator?
2: Yeah, this is all cross development. Uh, The the brilliant thing about modern computers is that they're really good at writing games for old computers. So (laughs) You know, cross-developing is such a dream, I mean, compared to how it was writing on the original hardware, it was so difficult. You know, you're swapping floppy disks all the time, and your source code can't be bigger than like 15k or it doesn't fit in memory anymore, and the compilers and the linkers and the assemblers were all so glacially slow, and, you know, 80 columns of text, if you were lucky, like it just, you know, it's just night and day. Um, you know, I can see my entire project on one screen on my 30-inch cinema display and, you know, rebuild the entire project in a quarter of a second. And, you know, it's just the iteration time is so fast and the tools are so good uh, that you can just develop, you know, 10 times as quickly uh, as you could back then. So it's really, it's a lot of fun. And and plus the documentation, I mean, back then it was really down to where you grew up. Did you happen to live near a good tech bookstore that happened to have the right, you know, books to teach you what you needed to know and, uh, you know, pre-internet and all that. So now every piece of, Information that is known about every retro computer is one Google away, and uh, all the books are online, and everything is all there. All the source code for most of the old games you can usually find, so uh, it's such, it's so much easier now than it was. A little bit of Googling, and you're on your way. Yeah,
1: the amount of information that that's out there now, and like people who make games for these old systems now, I mean, they are so much better than you could get commercially back in the eighties because there's so much more is known of these systems. I don't want to say everything is known, but just every little pocket of, of, of of the every little corner of these systems has been explored Mm -hmm. and people know how to do things that even the, you know, the designers didn't know about. So.
2: Yeah, and the tools are so much better. I mean, there's, you know, there's an integrated development environment for the Commodore 64 that'll blow your mind. Like it's, you know, if the demo coders of the 80s had had that, you can only imagine what they would have done.
0: It's funny, I think we're all a little spoiled by Google these days. I know that I use it as a replacement for my my real memory, so to speak. (laughs) Um, all the time. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's, it's the same for you guys or not, but given that I bounce around from, you know, language to language often um, with that each has its own unique syntax rules, even for something as simple as, say, a for statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself just Googling, okay, damn it, what's the, what's the syntax for the for statement in this language or in that language, or what are the nuances that I, that I keep forgetting every time I try and uh, write out this line of code? Totally. Um, on yeah. one hand, it's darned convenient. But on the other hand, um, you know, if, if we suddenly didn't have Google, it's, it's definitely making us much more reliant on this external source of information than we've ever been in the past.
2: Yeah, I I see that as a feature, not a bug, because it means you can use that brain power for something else, right? Like, yeah, like it's a great example. I write Python six times a year, which is enough to sort of vaguely remember how to use it, but not enough to remember the subtleties that you need to know to get something to work. Mm -hmm. So like you said, I Google every little thing instead of keeping a Python book on my shelf, because it's just quicker to Google everything and I don't have to dust a Python book every six months. Um, but that means that I don't have to use up brain storage or effort remembering Python. Instead, I can learn about Steam engines
0: knowing that Google will remember Python for me. So. But it, it, it fe- something about it feels dirty. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, I I should know what the syntax of, you know, a four statement or whatever. This, you know, I should know the syntax. I mean, certainly back in the day when I was programming in C or C++ for a living, uh, you know, that was just, second nature. That's the kind of stuff that you knew was part of doing the job. Now it could still be part of the doing the job. You just don't have to know it. You could just have, you have to be able to look it up.
2: Yeah. I think that
0: what Google
2: lets us do is, Keep the, the the concepts and the the abstractions in your mind. You remember the abstractions and the 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 way that C++ is written. You don't have to remember the syntax for templates because nobody remembers that, and it's sort of a waste of brain power. I feel like to remember that. Yep. Uh, but I get what you're saying. It feels like cheating or something, or you feel weak for having Googled it.
0: And it might very well just be because of how, (laughs) to put it oddly, how I was raised. You know, I was raised to know the language, right? That was part of, of doing stuff. And now we're in this environment where you don't really have to know the specifics of the language. One of the characterizations I always made when I was interviewing people for programming was that the language doesn't matter. In fact, it's one of the very common questions that I still get to this day. People will say, okay, what programming language should I learn in order to get a job at? Google, Microsoft, whatever. And my answer is, is always the same. It doesn't matter. Pick one. Pick one. Become really good at it. Get Cobol. the concepts, understand the- <laughs> Cobol. that. Cobol. That was the first language I had to work on when I started at Microsoft. Um, believe it or not, there was a Microsoft Cobol but the uh but the thing is that it's the concepts and the the framework and the, the ideas that you you end up needing to internalize and the syntax well that's just you know details implementation details
2: yeah absolutely yeah i'm a hiring manager at work and i get resumes all the time where people list the programming languages and the game engines they know and I could not be less interested in that uh, because none of it is exactly what we do. And I, you know, yeah, we're much more interested in your ability to learn new things and adapt to, you know, unexpected situations.
1: So so basically you're saying if you know one or two, you can know any number, whatever you need to know and get the book or use the Google one. I don't think it's
0: quite, I don't think it's quite an absolute mapping. Um, If you know one or a good programmer, someone who can be a good programmer, we'll know one or two and we'll be very easy, we'll be someone who can easily pick up number three and number four and number five, because it's the concepts that they've already internalized and become good at that makes them a good programmer. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you happen to know the languages that we're using and the tech stack that we're using, great. But uh, I think that learning learning new things is also a skill in itself. And the more of that you've done, then the more I know you'll be able to quickly pick up whatever tools we're using, because also everything we use day-to-day changes. I mean, we don't, you know, we were, we were using Redis and then we switched to Elasticsearch and, you know, it's changing constantly. So we need someone who can pick up, you know, new things quickly. So that's kind of the skill that we're looking for. So, you know, if you know five programming languages, I don't care that what the five are, but it does tell me that, okay, you've learned five programming languages. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I I also used to tell people what matters more is what you've done. In other words, show me the, the, the the programs or the, the, the technology that you've created yourself, or at least participated in creating yourself, that matters more. And especially coming out of school, I always get, well, how do I get experience if I can't get a job? Do something, do it in your spare time. You know, again, it doesn't matter what language, whatever, just go out and do something, show that you're capable of doing things. In fact, that it's the fact that it's on your own is actually a plus.
1: There's a thousand open source projects that can probably benefit from your, your
0: help. Yeah. 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 It's funny. at, At the time when I first started answering that question, there weren't a thousand open source projects. Now, like you say, there are, but back then it was, fine, go volunteer somewhere. I, can, I guarantee you that the nonprofit down the street desperately needs help. <laughs> Trust me on this. Because um, they can't afford, you know, real, you know, uh, to hire someone, but they uh, they could certainly appreciate perhaps your being able to solve a problem for them or do something like that for them so
2: yeah yeah no absolutely being in games uh i also the number one question i get asked is how do i get into games because of course everybody th- you know thinks they want to be a game developer and uh especially when i was in the console industry and uh yeah the answer you know to how do i get into games is we'll make games uh you know especially back in like the late 90s when i first started in the industry uh m- you know there weren't game development education programs like there are now so we were hiring people entirely based on their pet projects and you know because if you went off and made a game on your own on the side with nobody paying you uh it's a ton of work and it's extremely difficult and it shows that you really really care about doing this and uh so that was yeah i mean nobody's stopping you <laughs> the barrier to entry for going and making your own game for pcs is basically zero so just go do it and then show that to people and you yeah, we'll hire you
0: yep yeah. It's funny. One of the things that always concerns me is um, the confusion a lot of people have between playing a game and making a game. Mm-hmm. They want to become a game developer because they really like playing games <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't work that way. No, I'd much rather have you, you know, spend um, a year of your own time writing an operating system or writing some wonderful application that has nothing to do with games and then come to the gaming world. Right. Yeah. Um, than, yeah, than sure. playing games. Or yeah, if yeah. you if you really love to play games,
1: become a game tester and then you won't love to play games anymore. Exactly.
2: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nothing will ruin your love of games more than a career in QA, that's for sure. <laughs> sure. You don't yeah. get to play games for a living. You get to mash this button in, in a certain order for six hours a day.
0: <laughs> yep, yep. And God love them. Nothing against QA folks, man. We need them. We need more of them. But what a hellish thing to, to, to have to, to have to spend your time doing. Yeah, Oh, QA people the world over are underpaid. I will say, that. especially yeah.
2: the good ones. There are some good QA people out there that can find bugs that can like in the repro bugs that nobody else can. And my goodness, they're worth their weight in gold.
0: And they don't get that gold.
2: No, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, And it's, this is nothing, honestly, this is nothing new. It's, it's been the state of the industry for, for decades at least. Hey, what a great segue bugs, mm. bugs, bugs. You ready? I'm Kevin? ready. I'm ready. It's time for Breach of the Week. So we're going to have a couple of them today. As, as always, um, the breaches are uh, coming at us fast and furious. It's an interesting thing to try and pick one or two that uh, uh, actually are telling us more than things we've already, uh, we've already talked about. The, there are a couple that came up Um, One that I looked at was on Bleeping Computer, uh, is where I'm quoting from hundreds of hotels affected by a data breach at a hotel booking software provider. Now, this actually happened uh, in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. So most of the hotels that are impacted are, in fact, uh, overseas. But... Uh, that 's not necessarily always the case. I mean the, certainly these systems are available for hotels and other systems to or other services to use worldwide. but what it shows is that you can be impacted by breaches at companies you 've never heard of, and your favorite highly reputable hotel or other service that you 've come to trust may end up using or maybe using a third party that um, um, has let's just say a problem or two. They didn't have uh, enough QA on their security layer. Um, The other one that caught my attention was, see if I can get to it here. This is one that I'm honestly surprised isn't getting a lot more press because uh, it is another case of a firm you've never heard of. Uh, Exactus is the name of the company. And they have uh, exposed 340 million records of information on people. Now, if you've been playing the home game, you'll realize that there are at least 340 million people in the United States. I think that's about the population. It's in that order of magnitude, which means that they probably exposed data on every man, woman, and child in the United States. Quote, if you're a US citizen, your personal information, your phone number, home address, email address, even how many children you have may just have become easily available to hackers in an alleged massive data leak. This is a Florida-based marketing and data aggregation firm, which means they're basically folks who are collecting data from a number of different sources, aggregating it and then presumably reselling it to, uh, to others for analysis and use. Um, unless of course you can get at it for free because you've managed to hack their database. Um, Yes, uh, to quote it sounds, it seems like this is a database with pretty much every US citizen in it. Uh, So having become a US citizen about 15 years ago, makes me glad I did. So, Quinn, you're Canadian, aren't you?
2: <laughs> I am. Yes, I am still Canadian. Might still be safe Yeah, I have a U.S. green card, but uh, I am Canadian.
0: Well, yeah. actually, technically, I'm both. I was I was actually born up in Canada, so I've got mm-hmm. both both passports. But still, since I've got that U.S. Uh, citizenship, it's uh, um, I'm sure I'm sure that I'm in there somewhere. And it's interesting because they were character. They were also um, collecting a lot of. Uh, personal preference information, if I read it correctly, you know, to the point where, you know, this person likes cats or that kind of thing. So it's one of those very bizarre um, uh, exposures that may not have, again, dramatic financial impact in the sense that it's not like they're stealing credit card records, but they're stealing more and more information about us that could potentially lead to uh, more effective identity theft, because you know if they they know various characteristics about you, they can usually backfill a lot of the information that's required to uh, to create some of those some of those accounts. So it's another case of uh, yeah, QA. It's a good thing, especially when it comes to the security on your website. And it amazes me how often even these humongous firms, or at least firms with humongous data sets don't have um, enough of, don't really have all their bases covered like we kind of assume and expect they would. And it's happening every single
2: week. Yeah, I feel like the fundamental issue here is that there's no incentive really for these companies to have security. I mean, the the consequences of these breaches to them are are zero and it costs money to be secure and to you know maintain and, and upgrade your security constantly. And Uh, So to me, this seems this feels like a negative externality of of tech, like a virtual one. This is like virtual pollution to me, where, you know, there's no incentive for the companies to fix it. So it has to sort of be regulated in some way by a government or some impartial uh, external uh, organization. Uh, But before that is gonna happen. I feel like this problem just has to get worse and worse until something really bad happens. Like there has to be some sort of, you know, some sort of union carbide equivalent event where it's just so bad that suddenly people are like, oh, we should really regulate this stuff.
0: it's interesting because of the Equifax hack from, what was that, last year already? Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, as you say, very little, if anything, has actually resulted from that. I'm sure they patched the hole, but that's probably about all they did was patched that one hole. I like the the analogy to uh, uh, virtual pollution. I think that's a really good, a really good way of looking at what this kind of stuff is.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've certainly, I've been personally impacted by this, you know, we uh, on a much smaller scale, actually, we, uh, uh, at work, we had our, uh, our uh, all of our payroll records uh, stolen. And it was a very low tech attack. Somebody just emailed our HR rep and asked for the password under a. <laughs> wait, from, wait, from a wait, 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 email. wait. Yeah. <laughs> so they had spoofed the email and it looked kind of close to our CEO's email. It wasn't even exactly right. Uh, and uh, yeah, the person sent it to send them the password and uh, caught them in a weak moment or whatever. You know, we're all human and it happens. And a little social wow. engineering is, is better than a lot of technology sometimes. Mm. And uh, yeah, so we all uh, had to have tax returns filed in our names and all that. So now I have a special pin that I have to use with the IRS every year and all that. So it certainly, you know, creates individual hassle. But aside from that, it's hard to to quantify the damage done by this sort of thing.
0: I suspect that, um, as you said, some kind of a watershed event is going to have to happen. Or uh, the other thing is that some key individual, and I won't even speculate as to, you know, who might qualify as a key individual uh, would have to be seriously negatively impacted. Someone who's a, a, a policymaker or a decision maker or someone with a lot of influence who would then go in and enforce it.
1: Yeah.
2: Or possibly a foreign power rigging an election, something on that scale hypothetically. I don't think that,
1: that would has any, happen. Doesn't, no. And that doesn't make that doesn't change anything apparently. So uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: we'll see. We'll see if once the, uh, once the investigation is all done and said um, there, people,
1: People's yeah. minds are changed by that. But. You mentioned um, social engineering and made me think of oh, I one time a couple of years ago went to uh, the DEF CON uh, hacker conference in Las Vegas. <laughs> you and take the battery out of your phone. I, I yeah, I, I didn't take my phone, I, I took a, a little flip phone thing. And, That's what everybody says about
2: DEF uh, CON yeah. is take the battery out of your phone.
1: Yep, I, I, uh, <laughs> I. Did that precaution. Um, and I went because my teenage daughter wanted to go. I'm like, sure. You want to go to DEF CON? We'll go. You know, so I was, I know there's people who are really into it and go every year. And I was a tourist. I was a dilettante just showing up and, you know, seeing what there was to see. And I had a great time. But one of the, the most interesting sessions I went to was the live social engineering session where they, they took people and they were just like, put them in a soundproof booth, but then there was an audience watching them. And they were just like, okay, you know, you're going to call this company. Uh, you have 15 minutes and you need to, you know, get the server password or mm-hmm. whatever it was. And then they would you know, just call up and just be like super smooth. You're just like, hey, this is Dave over in engineering and we're having a problem with the production <laughs> server. And, you know, whatever. And just like do what they can within the time limit to, to get the password. And it was so good. It was so interesting. <laughs> But was it, I, I didn't know about that. I, now
2: I'm going to go see that. That sounds yeah,
1: amazing. Yeah, it was it was good.
0: I'm assuming that they were more successful than not. It didn't
1: matter. It was interesting either way. <laughs> um, yeah, and the time limit made it hard. But there, there, as I recall, there there was a couple of successes and uh, and several failures.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of uh, Clifford Stoll's book, The Cuckoo's Egg. That was sort of the, uh, the 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 tour de force of social engineering. He was all about that. And it, I guess I sort of imagined that a lot of that stuff that he you know, see, he sort of invented all that stuff, like calling, you know, saying you're Bob from marketing or whatever. And, uh, but I sort of, I guess I imagined that none of that stuff worked anymore because he wrote that book so long ago, but, uh, yeah, maybe not.
0: One of the things that I think surprises a lot of people, especially folks like us who've, who've been in the industry for any length of time is, um, I'm not even sure what the right word is because I certainly don't mean it to be derogatory, but, um, how, uninformed the general population really is about a lot of these kinds of issues. Um, the, let's face it, the Nigerian scam continues to work. Uh, and it works because yes, you've heard about it over and over again, and I've heard about it over and over again, but not everybody has. And by, you know, um, uh, using uh, lots and lots of emails to lots and lots of people, they're still finding people, um, that haven't. So the kind of sophistication that says, you know, well, here's what you need to look for when somebody calls you and asks you for information. Yeah, companies should be providing that, but not everybody's paying attention and not all companies do. I was in a computer store, uh, a
1: computer repair place just three days ago because I, I had a problem that I didn't want to solve. So I'm just like, please just take this and, and fix it. and And the woman in front of me in line, older woman, but seemed With it seemed pretty savvy. She was explaining, giving her computer over to the techs for repair. And she was just like, the guy called and he said he was with Comcast and there was a problem with my computer. And, you know, basically she got pwned and got something installed on her her system because she got a a random call from someone saying, you know, We've just, I've heard this story so many times, but there was this, this person right in front of me who, who had been a victim of it. Yep. And,
0: uh, yep. I, can t- I talk about it all the time on my website and the articles that I, r- I write, and um, still, uh, it happens. It happens a lot, uh, and that's, it is kind of scary, but it actually, it's, it's almost the curse of knowledge, right? It's almost because you and I are so incredibly aware of this problem, we kind of assume that everybody is, and that's simply not true
2: yeah I think it 's it's important to avoid victim blaming too in this type of situation. I mean uh, if someone tried to scam me with i don 't know fake medical knowledge or something some area that I have no knowledge of i 'm sure they could probably fool me if, you know, yep. if they were dedicated oh, yeah. to it. Yep. I, mean, I think about my uh, my father, who uh, is an incredibly intelligent man he 's a medical doctor and but he has what I describe as no internet immune system and so he's never been scammed but every single you know meme or you know political piece of fiction that someone puts on top of a picture of you know of of, of guns or hillary or whatever like he forwards all that stuff he buys into it hook line and sinker and it's all trivially disprovable with a google search in eight seconds of your life but he just doesn't do that he just sort of accepts it all and he just doesn't have that that sort of skeptical uh, stance, that resistance to the, to the wave of misinformation that is the internet.
0: I think a lot of people don't want to be skeptical. I mean, if there's one piece of advice I have for everybody, it's to be skeptical. I mean, just you know, take, take that extra step of you know, looking it up, asking the question, thinking for a second if it's true or not. Um, but being skeptical takes work it takes time it mm-hmm. takes takes mental energy and a lot of people, especially when it comes to i 'll just say emotional emotionally charged uh, topics like politics. Um, they don't want to spend the time. They've, they're too busy. They've got to reply right now, or they've got to spread the word right now. And it's it's it is unfortunate, but it's that same kind of lack of skepticism that uh, that leads not only to forwarding uh, inappropriate political memes, but also you know falling for scams and that kind of thing. Yeah, or watching bad
2: TV. You know, and people watch bad TV because they don't. You don't want to have to think all the time. You know, it's mm-hmm. exhausting, and we all have enough. During our day to to worry about that sort of high mental mental energy state sometimes you just want to look at a terrible meme that reinforces what you think and forward
0: it to your friends yeah <laughs> like the equivalent of bad TV I think yep yep although i i I, I watch my share of bad TV um, but I also when my brain needs a, a, a break, uh, I go hide in world of Warcraft and kill virtual monsters it's <laughs> it's also therapeutic
1: Speaking of bad TV and things that are inappropriate and therapeutic, can and we therapeutic. talk about can we it's talk about Pornhub? <laughs> <laughs> that was smooth segue there. <laughs> I'm a pro. <laughs> uh, I found this this one at Engadget. Pornhub adds closed captions for viewers with hearing loss. They have uh, added to uh, a thousand, over a thousand videos, they've added uh, closed captioning. So you can figure out who is saying things and what kind of mood they're in and uh, sounds that are emanating from the actors and that sort of thing.
2: So I assume everybody's immediately asking the same question I am, which is, what is the contents of these these captions after the pizza guy has said his little intro thing? (laughs) Feel like that's just going
1: to be a lot of long strings of vowels. That. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, captioner just like hanging out on the O key, just like <laughs> yeah, little macro says baby, and that's all you need. <laughs> think about the person whose job it is to type those captions. Right, yeah.
2: I think it's a job for AI myself. I could mm. believe that. I could believe there's some sort of text to speech thing happening there, or speech to text.
0: Just have this vision of some some poor, poor bug report going to like Google's AI team saying, hey, we've got this case where the AI isn't correctly, you know, giving us the speech or text to speech from this or speech to text from this and opening up, you know, this random porn video that says, oh God, what do I do now?
2: <laughs> now you just made me want to play a porn video into Siri just to see what Siri says about it. <laughs>
0: Why don't you do that and get back to us?
2: Yeah, you, you let us know. Let us know. Yeah, if, you ever, if you've ever like hit Siri by accident while you're watching TV and she'll right, like
1: Google whatever line of dialogue the TV says,
2: now I want to do that with porn.
1: <laughs> All right, I'm sure there's a research paper in that or something. Exactly. <laughs> I think we can write a grant proposal at least. I need. Yeah, I need. I need money for a prescription to Pornhub and uh, <laughs> transcription software and I don't know. I don't know what else you need for that. Get back to you. Uh, the other thing I thought that was interesting was, uh, <laughs> this just came across by Twitter a few minutes before we recorded. It was, uh, uh, OK, so uh, in a Polish environmental group was tracking storks using standard off the shelf uh, SIM cards. So tr- tracking the, the migration patterns of birds. Um, putting tiny cell phones on, on, on the stork and let it fly around and, and find out where it goes and whatever. And it, so someone, uh, the, the, the stork flew and did its thing, and somebody found the stork, took the SIM card, put it into their own phone, and ran up a $2,600 bill <laughs> wow. using this, uh, this nonprofit group's uh, stork SIM card.
2: <laughs> but they knew exactly where that person was.
1: Yeah, I probably <laughs> did. Yeah, yep. Um, it said uh, the adult stork began its southward migration to Africa in August 2017, and uh, the ecological group was able to track his GPS movements and post details about the journey online. The bird's last signal came from Sudan on April 26th, and later the group heard that some 20 hours of calls had been made using the SIM card in Sudan. <laughs> How do they know it wasn't the stork? It was exactly, exactly <laughs> what I
2: was thinking. <laughs> or, or maybe it was the baby that the stork was carrying. <laughs>
0: yeah. yep. Kids these days. Yeah, they're using cell phones younger and younger now. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I, I, I read the headline and not the article, and I had envisioned that the, uh, the stork was transmitting continuously, and that's what the, mm. the bill was all about. It, I didn't even realize that it was even better.
2: Yeah, well, that was my thought too, actually. I just thought they forgot to get the unlimited data plan or something.
0: Right. Well,
1: reading the headline and not the article is, is what you're supposed to do on the internet.
0: So, yeah, that's you're doing it right. my understanding. Yeah. Yeah, I lived up to my responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway,
1: I just came up with the weird stuff this week. Sorry, that's all I got. And I can hear your cat in the background. Yep, he wants out, and uh, it's getting to be coyote o'clock, so we can't let him out now. <laughs>
0: Uh, Sorry. Yeah, well, life is tough. Mm -hmm.
1: Your queries are quiet, so that's good. (laughs) So so I got something we can talk
2: about. Um, So we were talking about open source uh, a little bit and something big that's happened recently that uh, has the potential to affect my industry quite a bit, which is the Microsoft acquisition of GitHub. I'm curious. Oh, yeah. You guys think about that. Uh, We all sort of, we're all sort of on eggshells now. Like, are we... One EULA change away from Microsoft owning all our code now, or like, what's what's going to happen here? And you know, is Google going to keep using GitHub for all their projects as they have been? Because uh, apparently, Google was in the running and lost to Microsoft. They they were outbid for uh, for GitHub. So, uh, yeah, thoughts.
1: I believe we talked a little bit about this uh, a week or two ago, which which is fine. I'm happy to do it more because I'm super interested in, in what what you think. Um, I feel yeah, it's it's uh who knows what can happen. But I mean can't people easily move to, to GitLab or to self-hosted server and, and and just kind of lose the the community of GitHub? But uh, it's still so a thing that can be done elsewhere, right?
2: Yeah, yes and no. So for businesses like, like ours, it's it's a bigger challenge because we've got so we have an enterprise installed of GitHub and it's still running on GitHub servers, but uh, you know, it's, it's private and only accessible from within uh, our domain. So it's kind of, this is one of the paradoxes of cloud computing. You know, people treat the cloud as this magical virtual thing. But of course, as, as we all know, the cloud is just other people's computers. And so at some point, people maybe want those computers back or decide they own what's on those computers. And this is the, sort of the situation that we might potentially be in. And, you know, like a lot of modern tech companies, uh, we're all about... Open source tools and and cloud everything. I mean, we have almost no physical computers in the company. Actually, we have laptops and that's it. You know, and back in the day, you'd have a closet full of servers and all these other, all these other physical machines. But uh, you know, we don't. Everything's uh, in the cloud now. And so, uh, for the source code, that means GitHub. And it would be difficult to move all of that stuff uh, over to something like GitLab. And we also have you know service agreements with GitHub and. Uh, You know, they help us maintain the uh, certain they have uptime requirements and performance requirements that they meet and they have security uh, clauses and things that they have to meet. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a big deal to move that stuff. Uh, And it's not clear if there's anybody else that can supply the service as good as GitHub does.
0: One of the lessons we learned last week um, was this story about Twitter. Uh, picking up, what was the name of that service? Um, uh,
1: Start with an S. Uh, yeah. yeah, some security
0: company. Anyway, they yeah. they picked, they purchased this service and then without warning they shut it down, mm-hmm. um, which you know the folks that had um, SLA service level agreements or that kind of stuff didn't matter. They were out of luck. Uh, the service was simply gone. I think some of them got the courtesy of about a three hour notice. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's certainly the possibility for uh, uh, For some serious disruption now, on one hand it's hard for me not to be a Microsoft apologist uh, just because I was there for a long time, and I also know the you know a lot of the people on the inside, and there they tend to work with uh, uh, you know, truly best interests in mind. The problem is that what they see as best interests for the industry may not be what you see as best industry, in, interests for your industry. And that's where things get, um, get really rough really quick. My hope is that um, any changes they would make would have lots and lots and lots of uh, forewarning, advanced yeah, notice. For sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, we can certainly move the code somewhere else. Uh, it's, it's unclear how much of the history that we would be able to save, which is also actually really important for a live service software product to for be sure. able to, you know, all the pull request comments and all that stuff, you know, that's all really super valuable information. So we, let me, uh,
0: let me ask you this because, um, one of the things that I harp on uh, to my readers all the time is backing up. Now, granted what we're looking at here is a completely different order of magnitude, but, um, one of the things that personally, for example, uh, one of the, one of the approaches that I take is that, uh, in theory, uh, my entire site could disappear. In other words, the host could go away and I should be able to rebuild it from scratch. Um, with all the data intact on another host within a few days, right? That's, that's, that's like the goal the, the rule of thumb I tend to use for, for my backing up strategy. I would hope, especially if this is like a key resource for a company such as yours, that there are those kind of contingency plans, at least having been thought of.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, the the stance that our CTO takes on that, which is actually I find really interesting. I'm not sure I agree with it, but it's interesting. The stance that he takes is that. Basically, cloud is always safer than physical machines in the building. So, for example, uh, our, our build servers are all uh, virtual machines running on uh, Amazon and, uh, you know, versus every other company I've worked where you're you, somewhere you have a, a closet full of PCs that do all your builds uh, under the simple for the simple reason that it's just easy to maintain them. They're physically there. If you need to configure things or upgrade, they're right there. And they're all usually faster also than than uh, VMs. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, for, you know, he's thinking of things like theft and fire and so on. So he would rather effectively outsource all that, contractually obligate someone like GitHub to, do all that for us to have the security, to which, have the uptime, to have the, the backup. Which is,
0: it's fine to a point. I mean, you're, you're definitely getting rid of one set of, of very important risks. I mean, these are risks that need to be considered. But aren't you really just trading them for another set?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I don't know. Uh, you know, I think, so in the, in the question of backups, I mean, because we're talking source code repositories, there's a sort of a de facto backup sitting on everybody's computer, fortunately. So if, yeah, if GitHub went away, we could... We could rebuild it probably in a few days from from everyone's local instances of the code, but uh, uh, I wouldn't say that it's you know effectively backed up really. And it's a lot of that is just down to what GitHub gives us for services. I mean, to be able to back up all of the pull requests and all of the associated metadata, there's no facilities to do that. Uh, so we're basically just relying on them and our contract with them to say that you know they're going to guarantee our data.
0: There's, I mean, I mean, I'm. I'm not deeply familiar with with GitHub and how it's implemented. I tend to use SVN myself, but the uh, and it's self hosted of course, because um, that's the way I roll the The issue though is that I mean ultimately you're really just talking about a big fat database mm-hmm. and uh, you know be it the history if you can get at the history yourself, there's got to be a way to extract it and i'm not i mean I use the term backup because it's a nice model to work from because it covers you for so many different kinds of scenarios. But this one case that you've expressed a concern about, right? Say Microsoft changes the license, uh, licensing terms, the EULA for your continued use of GitHub. And all of a sudden they give themselves permission to poke at your code and to, to, to learn from it or worst case even steal it again. Totally unlikely, I don't believe they would ever do something like that, but that's a good worst case scenario that doesn't involve like data destruction or servers being lost or accounts being hacked. It's just a terms change that you can't live with. Um, it, there's gotta be a way to to extract everything. I mean, literally everything out of what at its root is nothing more than uh, a massive but glorified database.
2: Yeah, well, and that's the trick is that it's, uh... It could be multiple databases. It's really down to GitHub's implementation uh, you know, of their system. Like most, you know, cloud software, it's probably a whole big pile of PHP and C-sharp and .NET and SQL databases and various other, you know, bits and pieces. Maybe there's some Redis and some Elasticsearch in there and some Datadog and, you know, it's cloud computing is this funny morass of middleware and probably ad hoc scripts all gluing it all together. And it's basically on GitHub to provide some sort of API for us to pull all that information out that, uh, in some sort of organized way. And right now, the only access we have to it is through their web-based UI. And uh, so, short of writing scripts to you know surf their
0: UI and pull the data out that way, it's all web-based. There's no command line. Command uh, line
2: GitHub itself is so it's it's basically two things. It's uh, a UI interface to the pull requests and the sort of the Uh, the process part of the engineering pipeline, and then it's also just a Git server. So, you know, you can also just access it through Git uh, command line uh, types of of things. But there are parts of that that are not accessible because GitHub is sort of like a virtual process layer on top of Git. So things like pull requests and uh, conversation threads on the code and suggestions back and forth between engineers about how to implement certain things. That's all a layer that they've built on top of Git. Interesting. So that's the stuff that's not really accessible. The yeah. code itself is all just a standard Git repo. And you know, like say you can pull that in one command and we all have that locally anyway.
0: Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's well, you could also the, the any history that's in in the in the repo can be can be extracted as well one way or another. But you're right, this layer on top of it that's that's an interesting an interesting problem. What I hope at least I mean I don't want to get to, you know too far down into the weeds on this, but what I'm hoping is that if nothing else, this has served as a bit of a wake up call um, for you know any number of different country uh, companies, not unlike yours, mm-hmm. uh, who suddenly realize that hey you know everything we have is now in the hands of Microsoft, you know, they, they or whomever owns this, and uh, maybe we should be thinking about uh, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, and what our alternatives might be.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've actually had this argument with my CTO a number of times because I do actually disagree with them on this this sort of stance that uh, everything cloud is safer than everything physical. Uh, you know, I think there's an illusion of security that comes with with the size of some of these companies, like oh, you know, our our AWS virtual machines are never going away because Amazon is huge, but I think yeah, I think that's an illusion. It's just uh, sort of by convention, nothing has ever happened to anybody's virtual machine. But yeah, if Amazon turns
0: evil uh, or you know something catastrophic happens, or they get sold, or well, there are any any number of scenarios that could still cause you a lot of grief. Everything yeah. from service outage, which absolutely has happened. Um, to um, account hacks and and who knows what
1: just company yeah. pivots a company decides oh we're we're not yeah. in this business anymore and it happens all the time. I uh, mean our our buddy uh, our Jason Scott um, Quinn um, mm-hmm. he's been posting on, on his Twitter about uh, there's this Flickr alternative called 500px and it's you know been around for a while and they suddenly decided that they're deleting or removing access to all of the photos that people have uploaded uh, that are Creative Commons licensed. They're just taking them all down. And so people have been hosting their photos there and giving them away for free on this site. And apparently this company just decides that well, we're, we're done with that now. <laughs> yeah. And if you're using that as you're, you know, trusting the cloud there, then you're, you're pretty screwed because they're just like, you know, we're done with that. Right, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, another good yeah. example
2: is, is Google Reader. I mean, that was a
1: huge huh. application that Google Ugh. ran for. Yeah, five years ago, Quinn. Yeah, hey, <laughs> but hey, yeah, but hey, it's like it still feel, smarts. I, know. I still feel
0: the pain. I know. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm that, with they, her on that
2: one. they ran it for a decade, and it was enormously popular. It's, I mean, it, people never thought Google would shut that down. It was like, that would be like almost like shutting down Gmail. Like it was so big and so popular. No one could imagine it going away and then it did.
0: But one of the issues that I have with your CTO's position of, he's comparing cloud versus physical. That's not the comparison to make. Mm -hmm. The comparison that he wants to be paying attention to is this cloud versus that cloud. Mm -hmm. What are the restrictions on this provider versus the restrictions or opportunities on the other provider? you know, I, I don't necessarily disagree that throwing things into the cloud solves a lot of problems that you don't have to deal with if you've got physical servers on a rack in a room down the hall. But, uh, like I said earlier, you're trading it for another set of another set of problems, and those problems often are vendor specific, or the the risks are vendor specific, and that's why. Um, you know, I'm not, when I say that, you know, are you looking or do you have an opportunity to to have an alternative to GitHub? I'm not saying the alternative is a server in your closet. The alternative is a different service provider in the cloud. Yeah,
2: that's a really good point. And that's, I think that's the dirty secret of cloud computing right now is that these services uh, have all captured their customers. Like, you know, we run uh, all of our game servers that our customers' apps connect to are all run on AWS. And sure, there are other cloud computing Uh, providers that can do that type of service, but moving them for us would be almost impossible. I mean, there's no APIs provided, no, you know, admin tool or anything that will allow us to move that stuff to Google or Azure or any other cloud server provider. So, I mean, you know, AWS has has us captive effectively. Uh, I mean, we could take it all down and rebuild it somewhere else, but it would probably take a month and cost us many millions of dollars. So it's not a viable option. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's the illusion of a free market because we're effectively captive.
0: There's competition, but there's not. Yeah. So it's funny because I'm actually kind of sort of faced with a similar scenario that's probably a little bit more relatable to a lot of our audience. Um, Flickr, uh, with Kevin mentioned a little while ago, uh, one of the reasons people were looking at alternatives to Flickr is because they got purchased by um, SmugMug. And nothing's happened. Flickr is fine. It continues to operate the way Flickr has always operated. But at a very visceral level, you're thinking, you know, I've got a few thousand photos in my Flickr account. Um, what if SmugMug pulls like that Twitter thing where we, they suddenly decide I'm not gonna support that anymore? Uh, or they're, you know, they pull a Google Reader because you know, here's a really popular service and we're gonna take it away from everybody. Uh, What does that mean? What is that? What are the alternatives? The alternative is one heck of a lot of work. Um, And as an amateur, no big deal. I mean, I just, you know, my photos will go somewhere else and I may not recover and that's, you know, it doesn't cost me any money, but if you're say a professional photographer, or you're doing something serious and you've got your photos up on Flickr and things change out from underneath you, yeah, you've got a problem. So this is definitely, definitely something that happens not just in you know the the corporate ends of, of GitHub, GitHub purchases and companies that are that are writing software. This actually has real tangible um, risk for individuals who are using various services like Google Reader or Flickr or who knows what comes next. Yeah, I think the risk is
2: considerably higher. In fact, I mean, I really feel for someone like a wedding photographer whose business depends on Flickr. Uh, You know, they don't, they don't have an elaborate web of legal documents, you know, vetted by corporate lawyers that are providing some protection for their service going away. And, uh, you know, Flickr has been an emotional roller coaster. Uh, Someone tweeted at me the other day that uh, every time they sign into Flickr, somebody else owns it. (laughs) I uh, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. It's had a very checkered history. And yeah, a lot of people, a lot of creative you know, entrepreneurs, small businesses really depend on that service because there really isn't a great alternative. Uh, you know, Google's made a few passing attempts at photo hosting, but uh, for, for what Flickr does, there's really not uh, much for alternatives.
0: Yeah, right now I, I, I am of the, um, the hope that Smug Mug will do the right thing and treat Flickr well, treat Flickr better than it's been treated in the past few years, because it's been kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right, there, it, it serves a very unique, uh, it solves a very unique problem for a lot of people in a, in a very elegant and easy to use way. And I'm, uh, I'm hoping that it'll be around for a while, but you're right, we're all at risk. And to that extent, I hope, and I would assume at this point, that the wedding photographers and even the amateurs and whomever, they wouldn't lose any data if Flickr suddenly disappeared. They would have all of that themselves. They're not keeping their master copies on in the cloud. Um, unlike, say, the source code that people might have in a GitHub. But, um, but nonetheless, what they're losing is broken links and exposure and people being able to find them and they, the work they put into organizing and, and um, setting up their Flickr accounts and display. That's the stuff that goes away. The pictures are still there hopefully on a backup back at home somewhere or in the cloud or somewhere else. But, um, uh, but still it's a, it's the same problem with some different and potentially costly ramifications should things change. Yeah, I certainly
2: hope that's the case. I mean, the, you know, the industry is very much pushing people away from physical storage of any type, right? Like, Apple would love you to hook up your camera so that it snaps photos and puts them directly into Apple's photo cloud and it's never stored anywhere except, you know, Apple's servers and that terrifies me like I really hope people aren't doing that because especially with someone like Apple who you know, they come and go with their services every six months. They can't seem to keep anything running. <laughs> and they get bored and move on to the next shiny thing. So. It's,
0: it's funny, though, because especially with the auto upload, it's almost hard not to use multiple services. Mm-hmm. Because if you install Dropbox or you install OneDrive or you install Google Drive or you install your Apple's iCloud or whatever... They're each offering to upload the photos. Even Flickr <laughs> offers to upload the photos. So it's hard not to get them uploaded about five or six different times. You take if one five, picture, it uses a terabyte of your bandwidth upload. Pretty much, up. yeah. yeah. It's yeah. something that you really, really end up having to pay attention to. <laughs> um, and yet photos are, are much like source code. One of those things that are so incredibly unique, they're irreplaceable. They are absolutely irreplaceable. You cannot... Go you can go back and take that vacation again, but the photos won't be the same ones
1: yeah.
0: um to that extent that's the one thing that I personally have over engineered uh my backups for is you know they're replicated on a couple of machines at home and then once a week um the delta gets pushed up to some amazon s three storage I do use the cloud, but I use it as part of not as the entire uh repository for uh, for my stuff
2: yeah i wonder I often wonder how much of this is wisdom from those of us who remember when data loss was a thing and how much of it is just cranky old people and the cloud is going to be fine and that none of this is ever going to fail and why whatever. not both
0: <laughs> yeah i think it really is both i mean you know with age comes wisdom and wisdom comes often from pain uh we have probably all experienced our share of pain and we would like for the next generation to uh to potentially, it's not that they won't experience pain, but we'd at least like it to be a different kind of pain, new lessons learned as opposed to the ones we already knew. Yeah, people should look to, speaking of Jason Scott,
2: we, people should look to uh, preservation, retro gaming in particular. That's going to be a huge problem in a few years, you know, that the, all these games are online only and they require these servers that nobody operates oh, anymore. Yeah. And you know, a lot of us in the in tech like retro gaming, but there's a you hit a wall at like 2001. You know, you can't play any games newer than that uh, because the servers aren't operated. And uh, you know, that's that's a, I think a, a canary in the coal mine for for all of this cloud stuff.
1: I mean, it's only Absolutely.
2: it's only usable as long as some executive decides there's profit in running those servers.
1: Yeah, like specific, and like we, you and I play with Apple II computers, and you, you can now go on to archive.org and find probably ten versions of Choplifter, different <laughs> versions released over. You know, here's version one point oh one, and here's a version where they changed the copy protection. Here's a version where, the, whatever, the the little guys are blue instead of orange or whatever it is, and little variants and stuff. No one is going to be able to do that and enjoy that in 30 years for the games in the App Store today because they're just gonna be gone. If there is one, it's gonna be one version, the last version probably. But, you know, people like my buddy Gary, you know, pushes changes up to his, his apps all the time. And, you know, version 101 might've been more interesting than version 102 for some reason. And, and it'll just be gone, 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 gone.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to, one of my favorite early network games is Ultima Online. I was really, really into that. Uh, But I mean, you can't play it today. You know, there are people who have very sort of laboriously reverse engineered the protocols that the servers used. And there are now uh, homebrew Ultima Online servers running. But the game as it was, the true original experience is gone forever, you know maybe someone from Origin has a backup drive somewhere that has that server on it, but it's probably gone forever.
0: It's funny, because I actually get to insert a callback to my World of Warcraft comment earlier. Um, As you know, World of Warcraft continues. It's been, it's like, I think they just celebrated their 15th year (laughs) as a a massively multiplayer online game. And uh, they, a couple of years ago, actually shut down an independent effort that was attempting to recreate the original World of Warcraft, as it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And they shut that down, copyright, whatever. But they at least paid attention and saw that there was an interest in it. And in fact, sometime later this year, I think, they are going to, uh, I don't know if, what they're going to call it, but it's the moral equivalent of World of Warcraft Classic. <laughs> um, they picked a specific uh, version uh, of World of Warcraft, as it was uh, not long after release. And uh, they're going to bring it up. And let people play the original game the way it was. That's cool. It is kind of cool. That's I don't plan it. to play it, but you know,
2: <laughs> it's it's a really hard preservation problem because the nice thing about those ten copies of Choplifter is that they cost nothing. They just exist, right. and you can right. play them. I mean. Ter- to preserve these MMOs and such, someone has to run those servers and servers cost money. You know, it doesn't seem like
0: it, but. uh, Although when you think about it, one of the things that differentiates us from the games 15 or 20 years ago, you pointed out earlier, is that the hardware we have today is so immensely more capable than what those machines were back then, that running them on your own machine, no big deal, right? Nothing, nothing at all. Maybe in another 10 or 20 years, again, technology will have progressed to the point where, yeah, sure, running an entire World of Warcraft classic cluster on my machine in my closet, uh, not a big deal.
2: Who yeah, knows?
0: that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, there's probably going to be some sort of
2: wine bottler type thing where, yeah, it just packages up the client and the server as an app that you can double click on your watch or whatever. In your brain. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that. Those fifteen copies of Choplifter could be running as an icon on my uh, OS X machine, and it wouldn't even notice. so uh, yep.
1: Well, I look forward to that presentation at Kansas Fest. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now I have to make a Choplifter icon, That's playable somehow.
0: <laughs> hey, we just crossed an hour. I think we're pretty much good. This was an awesome, awesome conversation, guys. Well, thanks uh, what for you having got me. Coming? What you got yeah. coming up, uh, Kevin? Anything?
1: Uh, up? uh, nothing more the same. Uh, just just uh, editing interviews, and I should probably get some actual work done, but. uh, <laughs>
0: No, nothing special. Quinn, anything exciting on the horizon besides trying to avoid Kevin when you're both in Kansas City? <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, that's going to be tough because we're sharing a house. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I'm going to be frantically trying to get ready for, uh, for Kansas Fest. And uh, also we've got, it's going to be crazy busy at work. We've got a big new release coming up. Uh, the, uh, the the world of live service online mobile games uh, never stops, never sleeps. So uh, it's uh, it's pretty relentless.
0: Very cool. Well, and we are recording this on the evening of July the 2nd, uh, which means in the United States at least, it's two days before July the 4th. I am going to be spending my 4th of July um, at the City of Everett uh, 4th of July parade, as I have for the last four or five years now. I'm out there uh, giving uh, radio support. We use our ham radios to maintain communication amongst all the many, many volunteers who make the, uh, who make the parade happen. So if you're out in the Everett area, if you happen to be in this neck of the woods, uh, there'll be a link for it with the show notes, of course, and, uh, maybe, uh, come by, give a wave, say, hi, I'm the guy running around with the radio and too many things going on at the same time. Nice. I'm going to go to a baseball game. On the 4th of July. Very cool. What's, what's what's more American than that? Fourth of July parade, my friend. Fourth of oh, July okay. parade. I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to come home and drink beer. Excellent. <laughs> so I can do it, that at the baseball game. I claim, I claim that that's probably more American than just going to a baseball game. Maybe. Maybe Would you can you explain can...
2: something to me about baseball. Yeah. Um, and a lot of American sports, actually, that I've never understood as a Canadian. Why is the ice green? I don't get that part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Why don't they use
0: brooms on it? <laughs> yeah, no, I <it>
2: just <laughs> it seems like a waste.
0: All righty. Well, on that note, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh30. You can also find us out on Facebook and Twitter at The Teh Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you here again next Tuesday. Thanks again, Quinn, for joining us. It was really cool.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye.